I can move you. Make him move you. Make him move you. episode 27 of Ranking Review. Thank you so much for tuning in. This episode, returning guests J. Adrian Cook and your host and rhyming Canadian Mary Parsons are going to look at six musical horrors. That's six films that tell horrifying stories through music. As usual, you can expect spoilers for the films discussed and probably some coarse language. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Please tell your friends about it. I hope you enjoy episode 27. And if you're listening to it on the day it dropped, it's my birthday. So happy birthday to me. But if it's not mid-September, then, uh, well, the hell with me. Uh, so this is episode 27 of Rank and Review, and my returning guest, J. Adrian Cook is here with me to discuss musical horror. Here I am. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of cobbled this list together almost exclusively for you, so you should feel kind of honored in that regard. But I, I do consider you my, my musical authority dude. If I have a music-related question, which I often do, as you know, <laughs> you're my guy that I would go to. <laughs> well, that's awfully sweet. I don't believe you, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, why did you want to do musical horror, specifically? Well, it's my uh, area of training, obviously, and uh, with the, uh, well, I love that Bugs episode that you did with uh, right. Karen, and I thought if uh, I could have something as successful as that with my area of expertise, great, let's do it. And to uh, back up your area of expertise, you are in a band, you have performed music professionally, you performed with an orchestra, and you also have an insane memory for music. Uh, yeah, yeah. For the most part, like you said, you can remember almost everything that you've heard, more or less you'll recognize. <laughs> yes, uh, I also have a, a Bachelor of Arts degree with a music major, uh, performed with the uh, National Youth Orchestra and the Saskatoon Symphony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so he's not pulling all this out of his ass, he's not larrying it. This. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this is this is an interesting bunch of bunch of movies, and uh, I got some weird looks. I uh, I bought one of these movies from uh, the Game Traders place not far from here, and when I was buying Joel Schumacher's Phantom of the Opera, I felt judged. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> the guy he didn't say anything, but there was just something about the transaction. Uh, why do you think there is a stigma to musicals, especially I guess like the hardcore horror fans, people who love Friday the Thirteenth and Saw? You don't necessarily think are also really into a chorus line in Annie, <laughs> right? Mm. So it's an odd mix generally, but the, there does seem to be extreme reactions to both genres. People react violently to musicals like, I love them or I hate them. Same way they react violently to horror movies. I love them or I hate them. So to match the two together, kind of interesting. You don't see a whole lot of them, do you? No. <laughs> um, and I suppose the, the biggest reason why would be because it's difficult to scare somebody when you're singing at them yeah. and when you have a, a set up musical number uh, it's difficult to just have somebody jump in and spook the audience it happens a few times in this but it's, it's usually not easily done and I, it's played for laughs when it's done as well yeah. Yeah. and this problem I think is sort of 
instrumentalist or, or illustrates my problem with musicals in general. But this is my thing, you know. I know it's my personal hang-up, but I prefer my musicals to be light and funny. Because if you're telling a story about some starving person, you know, uh, living a life of misery and uh, uh, ruin, when they break into song, I don't know, somehow it takes, a, it breaks the reality of it for me. And then I'm just like, this is a production number. If I'm in a theater sitting in front of live performers performing it, uh, there's something about the spectacle and sort of the just honoring the people in the room that can really make that work and fly and be engaging. But when I have a further distancing of film, I don't know. I would say that musicals probably one of my least favorite genres of film. Um, you have a point, <laughs> but on the other hand, there's a reason why poetry is popular. Yeah. You can express grief and sadness through poetry, but really the, the best way to really express grief and sadness is to go, yeah. like that, yeah. right? Not as fun to listen to. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's a way of channeling it, and you can get very interesting effects by using your music and your lyrics and your poetry together to express an emotion that is just not available if you're being hyper real yeah and, and that's what i will say about a lot of these movies and i'm i'm, I'm not 100 percent on all of them but i kind of like the guts that it would take to approach a musical horror movie <laughs> like uh you know stepping into this arena okay everyone we're not for everybody right like <laughs> this is uh, this is for a niche audience, so you're already kind of backed against the wall. So you got to love it if you're going to do it, I think. And there is a feeling for all of these pictures that they're all gambles. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and great, great effort that went into it. Uh, we should mention the movies that we're going to talk about today. We have Little Shop of Horrors uh, from, I believe, 1987, I want to say, directed by Frank Oz, and it's... Uh, an adaptation of a stage play, which itself is an adaptation of a pretty terrible Roger Corman movie <laughs> that's notable only maybe for having a, a, a early performance from Jack Nicholson, but it's it's not worth looking for. We have Joel Schumacher's take on The Phantom of the Opera, as mentioned. We have Repo, the genetic opera. We have Cannibal, the musical. Tim Burton is here for Sweeney Todd. Uh, the Demon Barber of Fleet Sweet, uh, Street, I can't speak, and of course the cult classic Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. um, so quite a range even within this fairly specific t category. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, are you ready to go? Is there anything else you want to say as, by way of introduction? Let's get going. Let's do it. It all began in this little shop. Ow! Damn roses! Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happens. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. <laughs> no, it's not this one. What kind of a weird effect is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors, a story about a boy. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Unless I open a vein. <laughs> Where did you get such a weird plan? We're talking about the 1986 motion picture, Little Shop of Horrors. But more specifically, we're talking about last year's reissue of it. 
because uh, we're looking at the director's cut, and there's a fairly significant difference between the director's cut and the theatrical release of the film, which a lot of people might be more familiar with when they're listening. So I just want to make sure that people understand we are what we're talking about the director's cut, and uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, then there could be some traumatic spoilers to follow. <laughs> Indeed, very traumatic. <laughs> So this is a movie, yes, you were mentioning, based on a, a stage musical, which was in turn based in a Roger Corman movie. Correct. We have Rick Moranis playing a clumsy idiot named Seymour who works in a plant shop with a girl he likes. Uh, and he discovers a plant which can thrive only by drinking his blood. <laughs> and the plant then begins to make demands of him after it gives him fame and fortune. It improves, improves his life in many, many ways, but it, at a, a very serious price. <laughs> yes, and then things begin to spiral out of control. Very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so that does sound like a horror movie, but this is the, full of very catchy dance numbers and, and uh, uh, rich spectacle. Uh, Frank Oz is the director. He's got ties with Jim Henson and the Jim Henson Creature Shop, who are responsible for the Audrey Two plant. And uh, I think it's amazing. Like, Audrey, Audrey the, 2 looks great. The plant is amazing. <laughs> like, it is, if, if, if you don't like the music, if you're not into the performances, I think that just the feat of the puppet itself would probably make this movie noteworthy and worth checking out. It's that impressive. And that when you, when you think about they designed the puppet to be able to lip sync perfectly all of the songs. So that was part of the build. Uh, that they would yeah. be able to, to, to match it perfectly. It does have fully <clears throat> articulated lips and that puts it a step above most Muppets. Absolutely. And uh, that is the biggest uh, uh, obstacle in the, the production of it as a play. I wasn't in the production of it, but our theater did do Little Shop of Horrors and making Audrey real on stage is the challenge. Uh, obviously in film you've got a lot more tricks to use and they use them and, and bravo to that. But I do think it, it's a very funny movie. I think it holds up and works as a musical still. And uh, it's got a sort of special place in my heart just because I was very young when I saw it. And because I think it has one of the most memorable comedic scenes uh, and that I can think of on top of my head. Like uh, just one random scene out of a movie that I think is just hilarious. And which one is that? <laughs> It is the combining of the amazing comedic talents of Steve Martin and Bill Murray in a, in a dentist office. Does that actually happen in any other movie where the two work together? I, I believe it does not. I think that uh, they've been worked together on like Saturday Night Live. They've brushed a few times, but they've never shared the screen together, unless I'm very much mistaken. This was one of the really precious elements of the movie to me. Um, and... It's, it's a great scene. It's a hilarious scene. They both burn it up. It is, it is one of the funniest things I have ever seen. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's an isolated moment from the movie, but just that scene alone would make this movie worthwhile. <laughs> yes, the, the scene itself is Bill Murray playing a masochist, who incidentally is not in the musical, but is Correct. in the Roger Corman movie. Anyway, a masochist who's coming to the dentist to get dental work done just for the fun of it. He's heard about Steve Martin being uh, just a lethal dentist, just a brutal guy, so he's super excited to be there, and uh, it's hilarious. Yes. We and, wouldn't do it justice, but and please Steve look. Martin getting more and more furious that, <laughs> that his patient is actually enjoying the dental work. Yes. This goes against <laughs> everything he understands. Um, so, yes, 
Steve Martin, Bill Murray are bright spots, but they're not the only bright spots. In fact, there's a whole cavalcade of faces, sometimes just very briefly, like Christopher Guest, I believe, has two lines, and uh, John Candy has a scene, sort of a throwaway scene as a disc jockey. Yes. Uh, all great performances. And I want to give special note to Ellen Green, who plays Audrey One, our, our, and our love interest of the film. She's the only actor who made it the transference over from the original production, of stage production, to the movie. And she is, like everyone else, awesome. <laughs> you can tell when she's singing that she's holding back, that her singing voice is actually much better than she's actually portraying it. Which she, Audrey is a very squeaky character and very breathy, but the, the songs give a few moments where she's allowed to actually let it rip, yeah. and it, it really shows that... She's you know, girls got game. <laughs> you know she can really sing, and does. does. Mm -hmm. uh, Rick Moranis reprises his role as Lewis Tully. <laughs> uh, um, Very similar in a lot of ways, but I do think he does a decent job. And he's not known for his singing, although he is a singer. He's released a few uh, folk or country albums. I have not heard them, but he does actually perform and sing. So he. He's legit to that respect. But I, it does bring to mind that in some of the other movies, they will cast actors because they are big names and they'll bring people to the box office but who don't sing, who actually took up singing to do this musical that they were hired to do. And not only, I think that's a little bit insulting to professional singers and performers out there who would do a better job of it. Mm -hmm. And it just, it seems unnecessary. I mean, if you're, if you're just going to cast for the face, then just let them lip sync. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But there's no lip-syncing that I'm aware of in this cast, and I thought that Rick Moranis was, was fine. So. Yeah, he, he did the job. Yeah. The, the music itself is in a early 1960s doo-wop style. Tinged with 80s. <laughs> Tinged with 80s-ness, yes. Because, and there's lots of synthesizer in that. Um, that being said, I can't actually remember any extremely memorable melodies from this. Um, if you were to break into the song, I'm sure I could go along with it, but it's... I don't know. I, I'm a suddenly Seymour fan, <laughs> and uh, the Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. I think there's some catchy numbers. Obviously, the one that stuck with me was, again, the Steve Martin Evil Dentist song, but uh, yes. they are funny and charming and, uh, for to my mind, relatively memorable, but like I said, I'm not a musical guy. you know. <laughs> so uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that it doesn't... Uh, break new musical ground is mm -hmm. it's got some very very clever numbers particularly lyrically yes um and i'm a real sucker for double and triple rhymes and there's so many of the, those in this musical <laughs> really enjoyable but uh yeah the because it's in a doo-wop style and because it's got the 80s in this it's not going to uh compete with Beethoven I guess right right yeah and I'm but more it's sure fun it. and it's light and it, and that's all it needs to be yes and for all of the darkness of the story I got to say I love all of the characters I love them all yes even Steve Martin's character who's despicable because Steve Martin's playing him with such joy I kind of love him too where Mr. Mushnick who's like a completely crooked boss who has been abusing Seymour his entire life and continues to abuse him when he becomes rich and famous. There's, just, <laughs> there's something lovingly portrayed about all of these people that when things turn bad for them, there is some actual emotional punch to it. Like there's, we want things to work out for Audrey and Seymour and uh, we come to really hate Audrey too. <laughs> Indeed. Let's talk about the ending. Okay. 
The original or the one that we were... Well, I guess this is the original let's, ending to the play. Let's so. go with the story of the endings, and then we'll describe the ending as it is, and we'll have a little spoiler alert. Before this was released theatrically, due to some pre-screening and some studio <laughs> question marks, they cut about a million dollars worth of special effects work out of this movie, involving giant Audrey plants taking over the world, essentially. Amazing, especially for the time when you think this is before computer graphics would be being used. Some blue screening effects to make the plants look bigger than they were, but basically a lot of models and a lot of very intricate puppets. And uh, it's a protracted sequence. When you watch it now, it does seem it seems to just keep going and going. You can't believe how much footage they shot <laughs> that hit the cutting room floor. And I totally believe that even though they did win, and deservedly so, some awards for the effects in it, that... that the effects team must have just been crying when they heard that this was being cut mm -hmm. and that it would remain unseen for uh, like almost 30 years or something like that. Like t 25 years? I don't know exactly how long it was, but man, uh, I can understand why they would be crushed by that. But Frank Oz felt the cuts needed to happen because the audience were leaving the theater devastated. <laughs> this nice, light, fun bouncy musical comedy ends on such a bummer note that that's all people remembered they were liking the movie up until the end and then the ending happened and they all felt like the movie shat the bed <laughs> so what ends up happening in the actual theatrical cut is a happy ending in which uh audrey 2 is electrocuted audrey 2 is electrocuted and she explodes yep. right it's been a while since i've seen yeah it, so her last words i believe are oh shit yes. and then kaboom uh, so yeah, it, it was the Hollywood ending, sort of almost a <laughs> cliche of how they would compromise an ending to a, a movie. But the movie was subsequently very successful. But people who were familiar with the original play, which was sort of a cult hit, uh, recognized that compromises were made. And in this new restored edition, we do get to see all of that footage. And it does seem to be what the movie is leading up to. Maybe we want Seymour to get Audrey, but does he deserve Audrey? <laughs> like, he uh, certainly has sinned, hasn't he? He has, he has. And those sins need to be punished, you know? Let's describe the ending now. Spoiler alert. Okay. So, Audrey 1 is lured into the plant shop by Audrey 2, Correct. where she is mortally wounded. By Audrey too. Yes. She sings a goodbye song to Seymour and asks that she be eaten by the plant. So that she may at last be somewhere, somewhere green. That's green. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then Seymour tries to kill the plant unsuccessfully, and there's a protracted sequence during which the plant sings at him, and he flounders around being unable to fight it off, and then slowly, slowly, slowly he is eaten. And they spit out Seymour's glasses, I believe, at the end, too, as a little added. Fuck you, buddy! <laughs> and then we are treated to the Greek chorus goddess girls, mm -hmm. uh, telling us that things went bad like this all over the country, and then we get, what, seven minutes of giant Audrey II Plant plants carnage. <laughs> laughing as they destroy civilization. And the plant breaks through the theater screen, basically saying, this movie is serving as a warning that Audrey's are on their way to eat you and yours. 
And then it becomes a big morality thing that nobody, no person in humanity could resist the temptations that Audrey would be able to offer them. Indeed. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is a bummer ending, but uh, I don't think it necessarily spoils the brew for me. I understand why they chickened out, but I do think that they copped out. They should have stuck with the original vision of the piece. If you're going to do Little Shop of Horrors, do Little Shop of Horrors. That's my opinion. <laughs> but the ending, the original ending is perfect as it is and as you as it is it's just you're watching it and you can't believe what you're seeing <laughs> that this light-hearted comedy has turned so bad yeah. and as as the plants are laughing destroying it i found my the, the cities i found myself laughing along with them <laughs> and yes i am a little bit upset that they that they they took the cowardly way out and this brings us to I guess the question of test audiences. Yeah. Do they actually serve a useful function? Because I don't know. I don't know. I, especially when you're adapting something, uh, I think that you should just stick to what you're adapting. I mean, uh, that story's already been set out and laid out for you. Yes. So, on uh, that ground, I would say no. Maybe if it's a completely original work and you're you're floundering while you're cutting the thing and you need to know where the fat needs to be trimmed, maybe it has its uses. But in the end, I think that uh, you're going to amateurs to get professional advice. <laughs> Test audiences hate sad endings. Yeah. And if you look at any list of great movies out there, you will see many, many, many sad endings and Pyrrhic victories yeah. that leave the main characters destroyed. And if you're... Yeah, exactly. They, they are amateurs. And if they don't know what they're doing and they're asked whether or not they like something mm -hmm. they'll say they didn't like it when the sympathetic character was killed indeed for instance but that's not necessarily great art yeah and it'd be interesting to rewind history and see what this movie could have done i might have hurt the repeat business but i do think that cast and that concept probably was money in the bank depending on how much they they spent making it i think this movie was going to be successful just maybe how successful um, and keeping that happy ending makes it more friendly for the kids too I think maybe a lot of thought might have been to the parents who brought their kids to the movie thinking that it would be a fun rollicking comedy and then the kids crying on the way home from the theater because it ended so bad I don't know I like again I'm not defending their decision I'm glad that this edition finally has come out I will say that I'm actually a very big fan of Little Shop of Horrors I am too Lot 666 then a chandelier in pieces. Some of you may recall the strange affair of the Phantom of the Opera, a mystery never fully explained. We're told, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the very chandelier which figures in the famous disaster. Our workshops have repaired it and wired parts of it for the new electric light. Perhaps we can frighten away the ghost of so many years ago with a little illumination. So probably the most famous theatrical piece in our, of our lifetime so far is The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the, those musicals that people who don't know musicals at all have heard of Phantom of the Opera. It's toured every major city in the world with a very rich million-dollar budget production, and it is... It is the epitome famous grand spectacle theat theatrical entertainment. Bigger than Les Mis, you think? 
Arguably, I think, because, and it's probably because of the quote-unquote darkness of the Phantom story. Although, as we'll get into when we start talking about this, I, I have just basic story problems with this, <laughs> this piece. But um, Joel Schumacher, who's arguably probably one of the more hated of the mainstream Hollywood directors out there, uh, in tandem with the, the opera's creator, Andrew Lloyd Webber, came up with a Hollywood per major motion picture of, of the Phantom of the Opera. And they searched the world to get their new cast, and they spent a lot of money to make this very, very beautifully, richly pageant, you know, like, a beautiful spectacle for the big screen just in time for Oscar season. <clears throat> well, it's something this big is almost set up for a fall, right, in, in that respect. And... I'm not one of the guys that's going to jump up and down on the corpse of Joel Schumacher because although I'm not going to defend some of the bullshit that he's made, I will say he's also made really good movies. And I will say he's a working director. He does a movie every year or two. He doesn't take, you know, 15-year hiatuses. He's a working man. <laughs> so some of them are good, some of them are bad, but I can respect a storyteller that prolific just on its face. I've seen good Joel Schumacher movies. Yeah. Lost Boys was good. And did he do uh, Flatliners? Is that he did I Flatliners. Saw? He did Falling Down. He Falling did... Down was good. Yeah, like he's, he's done some good movies. So I wanted to say some good things because once we get into the review, <laughs> I'm going to start not saying nice things about it. But uh, I want to cushion it with the fact that this movie is not for me. <laughs> it's just not for me. And as much as I can appreciate the artistic integrity of the people involved and that they were trying like hell to give the people the spectacle that you would get on stage, I think there's something about being there. I think that if I saw this presentation of it on a stage with the actors in front of me, I would be more swept up in it than I was. Watching the movie, no matter how hard Shoemaker tried, I was bored. <laughs> I was interminably, endlessly bored. And I think this is the longest picture of the six, and it was a hard watch for me. Uh, where did I go wrong, Jeremy? Where okay. did I go wrong? Well, let's let's describe the movie first. This okay. is this is uh, based on a '86 uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, which mm -hmm. was in turn based off of a 1910 French novel by Gaston Leroux, which yeah. is actually quite dark. Yes. The Phantom tortures people and shit. Sounds a lot more into my wheelhouse than this was. <laughs> so there's a the Para, Paris Opera House is taken over by new owners, who are shocked when a mysterious genius haunting the place starts making demands of them, mm -hmm. in, including uh, casting his particular favorite soprano in the various opera roles. And this girl's name is Christine. Mm -hmm. She likes a guy called Raoul, who I believe is the benefactor, new benefactor in the theater, right. and is also mysteriously attracted to the Phantom. And they sing a lot, and there are a couple of showdowns. The Phantom tries to get them to perform one of his operas, and then there's a final showdown, and more songs are sung. Mm -hmm. And then, before you know it, two hours and ten minutes has passed. It didn't fly by for me. <laughs> well, yeah, it didn't fly by for me either. <laughs> this was really, really boring. And I think I can tell you why as well. Please. Well, I believe that it's largely due to the involvement of Andrew Lloyd Webber in the production of the movie. Uh, I He's believe, just too close to his own material? I believe that because he was there, 
they tried to make a filmed production of a stage show and you can see it because everything in this is a set yeah it's a there are no locations that they go to and the sets that they use are all big bright garish things that would look great on a stage but don't look so great on film and when they're moving around on these sets they don't tend to make grand mo uh, motions like they would if this was a uh, a film as well they kind of walk around and the camera follows them around dutifully and it's just boring to see hmm. works on stage does not work on film i've said it before that that you know theater is theater and film is film there are different mediums i'm not saying that you can't make a great film out of a great play but they'll be two different things <laughs> this is all i'm saying so i guess i can agree with that as as a possible flaw um, I want to talk a little bit about the casting here, too. Okay, because <laughs> that's really important as to why this of, sucks. <laughs> it's a bit of a problem. Gerard Butler, who was a, a, a relative no-name at the time, I think, he's come up in the world since with, you know, the 300 and whatnot, but was not a singer. And he had never seen or heard of Phantom of the Opera, really, much beyond the concept of it that everybody vaguely has. And somehow he got the role. And this is sort of the quintessential take on, on like, if you're going to cast this guy, the Phantom is ugly. The Phantom is ugly. So why cast the, this, this cute guy who can't sing? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't understand that choice. I don't understand that choice. Emily Rossum, who plays Christine, was 16 years old when she was selected to play this role for Joel Schumacher. And both of her leading men were twice her age, and this was the like the first thing she'd done. <laughs> so I think considering all of that working against her, I mean, I think that the sort of naive, wide-eyed innocence was just more genuine than performance, but maybe I'm wrong. It's that look of wide-eyed innocence that makes her performance so hilarious for me <laughs> because she pulls that look so many times yes. during, during the filming of this that it starts to get really funny every time she does it. <laughs> Um, add to that the fact that she's not really a great singer either. She has a lot of problems switching between her head voice and her chest voice when she's singing, resulting in a few <laughs> notes. <laughs> and couple that with Gerard Butler and his uh, inability to do vibrato, mm -hmm. which unfortunately he keeps trying. There's so many numbers in this where I said to myself, really, that was the best take they could have done? Yeah. This is a huge motion picture. There's, they had theoretically all the time in the world to get this right. Well, I feel better now because I was hesitant to, to critique the, the singing because I, I don't really have an ear for it. But I didn't think that Gerard Rutler was that great as the Phantom. And I thought that that was kind of a pretty important role to get right. Um, but I will say that, to my surprise... Minnie Driver, who has a supporting role of this, like, complete arrogant ingenue bitch, uh, I thought could really sing, <laughs> was pretty, sort of surprised me. Well, Am uh, I wrong there? <laughs> she, she was uh, attempting to mimic the uh, diva soprano style that, right. that you would hear in opera from uh, around that time period, and she pulls it off pretty successfully. But it's still, um, it is still a, a satire of that. Well, not satire, parody. One of those. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's actors that I like that show up in it. Patrick Wilson plays the love interest, her other uh, love interest who's competing with the Phantom. Um, 
And he just has that same sort of uncomfortable look on his face that Brad Pitt had in Interview with a Vampire. And that, like, <laughs> this is a, a big, high-profile role and will be very helpful for my career, but I'm not comfortable here. <laughs> like, it just seemed to be right on his face. And Siren Hines, uh, who uh, is one of the new owners of the theater, uh, who's an actor I really like, uh, and uh, an Irish actor who's in, like, Rome, played Caesar in the HBO series of Rome. Uh, and he's also uh, the king beyond the wall in Game of Thrones. Correct, yeah. Uh, is he? Is he? I didn't, oh, yeah, oh, that's cool. him. Cool. Well, I, I like him a lot, and I just sort of felt like he was kind of wasted here. <laughs> well, here's the interesting thing, too, and you can feel free to edit this out if you want to do research, but I believe that he was also not really a trained singer when he came to this role, and he's great. Yeah? He has a good voice. Okay. So, uh, I mean, he doesn't have a big part in the movie, but I recognized him, and it was it was a nice, like, something for me to grab hold of in the movie. Uh, and because that's what I felt like this movie was slipping by I was really trying to meet this movie halfway I was trying to like engage with it because like, I knew that this was going to be a, a, a tougher list for me because this is not my typical cup of tea and uh, I kept on getting worn out I kept on looking at the counter and saying 43 minutes really okay <laughs> uh, there's uh, an aria called uh, here let me just look it up it was uh Wishing you were somehow here again, which Emily Rossum is singing in the graveyard. It, 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 it's, we saw, I heard the music queuing up. I saw she was getting that look on her face. She was going to sing something, and I said to myself, "Oh God, here we go. I can't take another one of these <laughs> songs." And unfortunately, that's not anywhere close to the end of the movie. Yeah. And yeah, I got during that song. I, I made some work for myself. I went and picked ticks off of my dog. <laughs> And so it was a productive movie in that sense. But uh... I, I felt that, like, unlike Little Shop of Horrors, and obviously these are very different musicals, but like during Little Shop of Horrors, the songs I really felt forwarded plot. Uh, Seymour, where'd you get that plant? Well, I'll tell you. And then he sings us a little song about how he found Audrey, right? And at the end of that, we know the origins of Audrey, and we know a little bit more about Seymour, and we're a little bit further ahead. Huge, vast production numbers of musical would happen in Phantom of the Opera, and I would feel no further ahead than I was at the beginning. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. The plot <laughs> grinds to a halt as soon as the song starts. And part of the problem is, is this just the basic, lame simplicity of the story itself. This is a half-assed hunchback of Notre Dame. A <laughs> significantly less interesting hunchback of Notre Dame. And like I said, the original, uh, like source material was actually significantly darker and the phantom was like ransoming people and, and torturing them in order to get what he wanted mm -hmm. and in this version he's like make sure you keep my seat empty my box office empty and uh, make sure you cast who I and make sure you pay me they made a big point that he was getting paid i assume he spends his money exclusively on candles because I, <laughs> I don't know i don't know what else he was doing down there it's just there's so, the story is, is like like total stalker wish fulfillment bullshit love and the fact that they do a reversal and try to make us feel sorry for the phantom doesn't work and I don't care I feel like I've been here before I've been here better and uh, the music isn't helping in fact maybe it's hindering here's another problem <laughs> let's keep going let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's pour let's, more fish let's, on let's this. let it all out the more we talk about our issues the more we can get past them right? <laughs> so Andrew Lloyd Webber yes I've never liked him Okay, well, so you had a bias going in, hey? Well, I've always thought that his music was, you know, at best, it was kind of a diverting oddity. And 
at worst was completely overblown. And when this came, the music in this is completely faithful to the original score, obviously, because it's full of 80s synthesizers. And yeah, it's completely dated because of that once more. You, you know from past podcasts that this can be an issue for me. Indeed. Um, and this just goes to show that, once again, Andrew Lloyd Webber, in my books, completely overrated. Well, uh, somebody who's a genuine fan of this piece, uh, my my friend and yours, Lee Beckman. Yes. Like he can, he knows all of the lyrics to all the songs. I think he saw a production of it at a young age. It really wowed him, and it made him want to be part of the theater world. You know, uh, and it moved him when he saw it live. And he didn't like the movie. And one of his big issues, I remember him telling me about it, was the fact that they had them speak some of their lines in the middle of the songs instead of singing them, like. That they they took these little movie beats into it. Um, huh. Having not seen the theatrical production, that didn't stick out for me. <laughs> but it, I can't comment on that either. To, to me, it does sort of seem like pick an alley. If you're a musical, be a musical, and if you're you're not, not. But I, I thought that that Little Shop of Horrors struck a nice balance. But the, this is an opera. I think it's a little bit different than a musical. It, opera sort of implies that the whole thing is told through music, right? Well, I wouldn't say this is an opera. Yeah. No. Well, it pretends to be then. <laughs> I wouldn't say that either. No? Okay. No. Well, good. I guess we're not discussing <laughs> musical operas, are we? No. Is there anything else that you want to say about this uh, we've been suitably mean? Um, I'll say one more mean thing. Okay. Uh, if you want to watch uh, uh, a Joel Schumacher 80s musical, I would suggest that you just take that greasy saxophone guy from... The Lost Boys and put him on a two-hour loop. It's be it'll be way more fun. It'll be better use of your time. Yep. Um, sorry, fans of Phantom of the Opera. This one not be ranking high. She must escape. Okay, we're going to talk about Repo, the genetic opera. Uh, it's directed by Darren Lynn Boosman. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He's most famous for taking over the reins of the Saw franchise after it became successful. He did, I think, two and three and produced the subsequent sequels. And depending on who you talk to, he, he's either a miserable son of a bitch or a mad genius. Um, <laughs> uh, but this is an interesting little side project, uh, the origins of which sort of seem promising because it's very similar to the origins of Little Shop of Horrors and uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show in that it started as sort of a off-off-Broadway culty musical phenomenon that started drawing bigger and bigger audiences and making more noise than it seemed warranted. Called the Necromerchant's Debt. Yes. Um, and uh, some producers from the Saw franchise were turned on to it and uh, they saw it and liked it enough that they were going to try and make this into a feature film. They're going to try, try this. And I'm going to give them points because, again, 
it took some balls to throw some money into this. And fortunately, it didn't immediately pay out because this movie bombed horrendously when it was released. Um, but that said, that was also true of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. And right now, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is arguably the most loved cult movie out there. Well, I uh, sense another cult hit coming on yeah. with this in a few years, honestly. Possibly time is yet to tell. I mean, for me, I'm going to say I don't 100% get it, but I don't 100% hate it. <laughs> uh, I fall right down the middle with Repo the Genetic Opera. I will tell you this, though. It ain't boring. <laughs> yeah. Here's the pitch. And you know this would totally fail if it was just some starting screenwriter in front of a, <laughs> exactly. a producer, right? All right? Okay, so here's the pitch. It's the not-too-distant future. And America has been hit with a wave of organ failures. No! The only way for the place to be saved is for this company called Geneco to come in and start manufacturing organs for people. And Geneco also pioneers cosmetic surgery. So before you know it, people are changing their appearances and getting their organs replaced. Living in... Constant servitude to the man. <laughs> yes, and if they fail in their payments, then they are hunted down and murdered by repo men who take their enhancements away from them and resell them, pres yeah. presumably, though I don't see that happen. Uh, and the repo man is played by Anthony Stewart Head, who is most famous for being the watcher from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing Mr. that they did Giles. come correct with uh, with this movie, too, as far as the packaging. This does have cult movie cred to it. Like, uh, Bill Mosley is in this movie. Uh, they got Paris Hilton playing a really sort of shrill character. Um, and uh, recognizable faces from the horror sort of fringe cult world universe show up throughout the movie. Paul Sorvino, who it turns out is an opera singer? What? <laughs> and he's really good, too. Apparently Paul Sorvino is legitimately a singer, though, too. This yes. is, he's sort of like secret talented, like uh, Christopher Walken is always a song and dance man before he was discovered to be a brooding character actor. That it's, I did not know. It is true. Um, so there it is. Actually, if you like Paul Sorvino in this, I encourage you to check out a movie called The Cooler, where he plays a... Uh, Aging soprano who was hired to entertain in a Vegas lounge. Yes. Sub no. Anyway. <laughs> so I set up the uh, the the setting here yes. only. That's the thing. Okay. So we have a girl by the name of Shiloh who uh, Anthony Stewart Head is her father, and she's the he he's the head repo man yeah. for Gene Co. And she has to spend most of her time in her room because she's sick, but the impetuousness of youth sends her out. And She's being hyper-protected by her father from this vicious, terrible world. Yes, and it turns out that the absolute leader of this terrible world, uh, Rati Largo, yes. played by Paul Sorvino, is intimately involved in her history and her dad's. Correct. And is looking for a uh, an heir to Gene Co. to replace his three useless children. Yeah, they're not going to be up for the job and he knows it. Um all of this is very cleanly and well set up in the sort of prologue and they introduce all the characters they all have their sort of little presentation this is who they are mm -hmm. this is how they fit into the story the prologue uh, is told in, uh, in comic panels as well that's an interesting thing to have done correct um, so we get we get the setup and then we get the opening number where we get sort of introduced to the style this is sort of gothic rock a little sort of heavier metal kind of uh, vibe to it 
But I rock Ralpra. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can imagine Alice Cooper masturbating to this. Indeed. So uh, I get it, and I don't hate it. I don't love it, but I get it. My feeling is is that about a half an hour into the movie, I've sort of seen the movie. Explain, please. <laughs> Basically, everything that the movie had to offer, as far as its visual aesthetic and its colorful cast of characters and its musical style was presented to me basically within the first 20 minutes and there wasn't enough variance to it like i couldn't i couldn't tell you the names of the of specific numbers even there was a sameness to it throughout uh i, I can see what you're going going for there i, yeah. I can't articulate it well because i don't speak the language <laughs> yeah, but uh, this is another one that i don't think i could belt out a tune from sadly <laughs> Um, and I, I see that it, it doesn't play a whole lot of different musical notes um, um, as far as mood is concerned. Yeah. The music itself is nicely complicated, um, and it kept me interested. But, yeah, you're, you're not going to find anything nice in this, that's yeah. for sure. It's all very gritty and grimy and ugly. They stuck closer to the quote-unquote opera format in that there's very little dialogue in this movie, too. Almost everything is sung. Yes. And it seems as though... It seems as though the characters actually know they're in a goth opera, too. You know, Rati Largo actually... Somehow he thinks to himself, Yeah, this is a great idea. I should orchestrate a Gorefield showdown between myself and my old enemy on live TV and simultaneously disown my children. That'd be a great idea. Yes. Let's do it, right? Uh, I, I, like, in a way, the performers almost have to recognize the ridiculousness of it, but the story doesn't. In a way, for all its garishness, I think we're being asked to take it seriously. Yes. And, and maybe if they let a little more fun in through the cracks, maybe I would have had it more accessible to me. But like I said, that's just my personal bias. I prefer, prefer my musicals to be funnier, because then I can sort of go along with the, the artifice a little bit more. Well, I disagree. I think the, the tone of the film was exactly as it should have been. And I think there are enough musicals, particularly in this stack, that uh, take themselves very lightly. And it's nice to see something that takes itself so seriously and dark. Um, I believe, I hope I get this right, I will check and confirm, but uh, Sarah Brightman, who plays Blind Madge? Mag. Mag. Yes. Well, by Mag. She's like a legit serious opera singer performer she's one of she the... was christine in phantom of the opera <laughs> i believe you yeah. <laughs> um and i think that in, the, in a movie full of actors playing singers i think she definitely stood out as like this chick's the real deal <laughs> and mm -hmm. in a way that was a little bit distracting but i gotta say giles anthony stewart head i thought had did a pretty decent job. In he brought role. real passion to that role. And he was yeah. doing a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. As much as he is Repo, but there's a different character when he's around his little girl than when he puts on the mask and becomes this evil guy. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed his performance quite a bit as well. Just the, particularly when he's talking about his daughter or singing about her. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually wails his lines with with abandon it's yeah. it's great he commits and that's what you have to do here yes because if anybody half-assed it i think that it would have become embarrassing i don't think this is an embarrassing failure if, i mean if it's not a complete success 
that so be it. But it's not embarrassing. I didn't cringe while I was watching it. I wasn't like, oh my god, nobody will be able to show their faces after this, you know? Yeah. And it seemed like one of those things that could have just failed spectacularly. And that's not the case here. No. I just think, like we've said before, I bet you if I saw the stage production of this, I would have thought it was pretty cool. But Indeed. the movie, I didn't think it was particularly cool or not. I, it kind of washed over me in a lot of ways. There are some plot threads that are a little bit confusing. Blind Mags in particular mm -hmm. um, doesn't seem to really go anywhere other than just have just to have something bloody. She's got a cool visual uh, yeah. thing to her and uh, she sings really well but where she fits into the overarching story that we're watching is, is, is arguable. Plus <laughs> the grave robber character who acts as the Greek chorus for this movie his motivations seem a little bit clouded because he's helping Shiloh, he's not really helping Shiloh, what is he and doing? And I guarantee you he's there because he's there in the stage production, yeah. you know? He might have been something that they could have jettisoned uh, when they made the, the crossover to film because film can show you things that stage can't. Yes. They can give you the comic book panels to give you that exposition so you don't need someone to run the show in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, it was shot in Canada. This is Canadian made. Uh, yes. That makes you proud. Um, but it could have been shot anywhere. It's clearly shot in a warehouse full of blue and green screen. <laughs> it's another It's another set movie, but it doesn't feel like a set like Phantom does. Mm -hmm. uh, I like this movie for what it wants to be and for its, you know, distinctness. You'll never <laughs> see another movie like Exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is a curio. And for that reason, you know, I think that it, it could, you're right, develop a a cult audience. Um, I'm not foaming at the mouth over it, but I don't hate it either. And uh, and who knows, you know? Uh, I got it on the wall now. Maybe the day will come where I'll go round two and I'll realize this is genius. <laughs> but for now, it's all right. Um, that's <laughs> mainly how I feel as well. Um, it's unique in so many ways, and special in so many ways. Almost perfect in so many ways. In the the execution, how could you how could you make it any better or worse as a goth opera? Yeah. Can, can you make a better goth opera than this? There's a challenge to filmmakers out there, <laughs> by the way. I don't think so. For now, this is pretty much the only one I can think of. So, uh, please, cult people, <laughs> let's have dress-up nights for Repo. We shall see. In the tradition of Friday the 13th, part two, and Oklahoma comes the first intelligent film about cannibalism. <coughs> <laughs> what the hell kind of language is this? I don't know, just keep laughing. <laughs> I was on top of you. All the guys I just got to know. Okay, well, uh, a couple of reviews back when we were talking about Phantom of the Opera, we were talking about a, a lavish production, a movie that had millions and millions of dollars to which to tell this very popular and celebrated stage piece. So what we're at here is the complete opposite end of the spectrum. This is a movie that probably cost as much as your first car to make, <laughs> and it's <laughs> telling the true story of Alfred Packer, the um, first person who was ever convicted of uh, cannibalism <laughs> in the United States, uh, told as a piece of musical theater. <laughs> 
Although that's not even true, because to me, this is actually a love story between a man and his horse. <laughs> but uh, it's got layers to it. Uh, the other thing that is going to be obvious to anybody who watches this, this film was made in 1992 by uh, Trey Parker and uh, with help from Matt Stone. And uh, Much like South Park. They were in... They were in university. They were students, and uh, they were making this movie with their friends, with the means they had at hand. And it's amateurish, and it's obviously amateurish. So what this movie doesn't have in production value, it has in ambition, and for lack of a better word, pure balls. <laughs> this To undertake such a project, and to imagine that it would somehow find an audience... Uh, amazing. <laughs> um, is it 100% successful? Does it have me rolling in the floor in gales of laughter? Does it reach the heights of South Park or Team America or the Book of Mormon, which this team would subsequently be responsible? Hell no. But you can see the seeds of genius in it. And because of how much they're trying to do with so little, I can't help but at least have a bit of a soft spot for Cannibal the Musical. You root for it <laughs> when you realize where it came from. Indeed. And you root for it when you see what became of its creators. And when you realize that it was just them doing this, you realize that they're geniuses. <laughs> Specifically Trey Parker, I believe, is the, the genius. The real brains yeah. behind it, yeah. Because he directed, wrote, and stars in, sings in, edited pretty much did everything with this movie and it's actually kind of depressing for us here in you know another backwater province <laughs> far away to see okay so this is what you need in order to break out of your uh, you know break out of the backwater and you know get under the limelight is you need to be able to do all this shit i guess we're kind of fucked aren't we larry <laughs> but the lack of compromise in vision cuz with a project like this there will be a million voices telling you not to do it. The loudest probably coming from your own head, you know? <laughs> and, uh, like, again, we're talking about how much we respect the fact that they stuck it out and made the movie. This was released by Troma, uh, this, uh, this label of cult films, which uh, I assume most people have heard of, that specialized in no-budget movies trying to make a quick return on VHS. And to me, because I'd been burned so many times... Troma was basically a stamp of shitty quality. Uh, and this movie coming out of the Troma, it's arguably one of their best films other, ever that the Troma produced. Another Troma one. Troma did not produce this. Well, they, they distributed it, yes. they didn't produce it. Uh, some talents have emerged from Troma, but <laughs> uh, for the most part, it's a pretty scuzzy outfit making pretty scuzzy movies. So I was blindsided in a quality ish film coming out of Troma. <laughs> but um, indeed the first time that I rented this movie back in the 90s yeah. I rented it and started watching it flipped the box over and saw it was from Troma saw the first few scenes and decided I couldn't handle it yeah. because it was Troma <laughs> I like my bad movies uh, not intentionally done correct because then that's the, their bread and butter. They're so cheaply made and you can see the scenes so obviously, but they never really try to make a real movie, quote-unquote. They're always trauma movies. So if this is your problem, <laughs> ignore the trauma label. Yeah. It was uh, created without trauma even knowing about it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I don't want to sugarcoat it either because the production values are shockingly low. <laughs> Compared to what people are used to seeing nowadays, this movie looks like it was shot with a VHS camcorder. And some of the performances are uncomfortable. Like, the actors seem uncomfortable on camera. <laughs> there are problems, and I'm not going to pretend that there aren't. Everything is on location, mainly because they couldn't afford anything afford else. anything else, yes. Uh, and there's definite problems with the sound editing as well. Yes. Um, it, it has a hissing in the background pretty much all the time. The music quality, well, it's all synthesizer, obviously. Um, yeah. and the songs <laughs> are strong, the music is not. Yes. The, uh, the songs are brilliant in their own way. Yeah. Um, and, and to that level. And I think brilliant in your own way is actually, I think J. Adrian Cook nailed it just there, because uh, that's the way I feel about this movie. It's not amazing, but in its own way, it's kind of brilliant. And uh, some evidence to that fact. Uh, one of the first big numbers is the Sprindoinkel Day. Sprindoinkel. Sprindoinkel Day. When he was writing the song originally, he painted himself into a corner, and he didn't know where to put there, so he wrote Sprindoinkel. <laughs> and at the end of the day, he just said, fuck it, and went with it, because he had that much trust in himself. Yeah. Fact. Um, I wrote this down when I found this out. Uh, Nihonjin, which is what the, the, the Indians they in, encounter are called. They're Nihonjin Indians. Yes. In Japanese means Japanese people. And they're all played <laughs> by, by Japanese, Japanese film students. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the court transcripts, the dialogue in the court, as, as stilted as they are performed, transcript from the actual case up to the point that a woman threw an apple at him. Get out. Absolutely true. That's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, was there one, I think, th those were the big ones anyway. The fact is, is that it's smart and funny when you don't even know it's being smart and funny. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> the, yes, when the smartness comes, it really just, it come, it's really unexpected. Like when they're, the trappers and the miners uh, are in the middle of a musical number and it stops and they start having an argument about key signatures. And still, <laughs> yes. I don't speak the language of music, but that was still hilarious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> What key was he singing in there? <laughs> Wait, you're not getting into modes, are you? <laughs> yeah. And they all stop to discuss the number before they proceed. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. um, and just some of the songs in themselves, in themselves, I really got a kick out of the Let's Build a Snowman number. Playing the happiest song, playing it against the dreariest backdrops. It worked well enough for me. And like I said, the, the movie largely plot-wise, which we haven't really discussed. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll just run over it here, here. But yeah, finish your sentence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, it largely concerns his relationship with his horse. For some reason, his horse dubs him unworthy and abandons him at some point, And it crushes his spirit. And really, it's not so much a journey telling the life story of this cannibal as it is <laughs> the journey of him learning that he is worthy of the horse, but... He can choose what horse he wants to be. He doesn't need the horse to Indeed, be happy. He doesn't need his horse to be happy. This is the internal <laughs> journey that is happening. You know what I kept on saying about this being quietly? <laughs> Indeed. 
Anyway, yes, please. Okay, indulge well, us with the plot. Let's Eight leave out the story uh, with Leanne the horse, which we've already discussed. <laughs> Basically, enough. it's just a bunch of miners go into the mountains and starve to death. <laughs> but much. the journey along is pretty funny. We know that that uh, our main character is on trial for the uh, murdering and eating them. Uh, and the entire film is basically his testimony as to the events of what happened. Indeed. Now, I, my favorite moment of this, the, the moment of absolute brilliance, has to be in the mountains when uh, Alfred Pack, Packer, his main character, has come back from a reconnaissance mission to discover one of his crew has killed and, eat, and eaten <laughs> his friends. They get in a fight and he shoots the guy. And then in true movie serial killer style, the guy keeps getting up and attacking him again. And <laughs> he gets shot and you know, Cleaver goes in his face. Something gets stabbed into his eye. And then... He will not die. After the third time he goes down, <laughs> Packer starts singing. And then the song is interrupted when the guy gets up and attacks him again. He kills him again. <laughs> then he starts singing. He gets a fair ways into the song. The camera's kind of panned away, and the music just stops. And he's looking out on this panorama with this look on his face. There's no dialogue. It's just beautiful. The look on his face says, Oh, God, he's standing behind me again. <laughs> they fight again. <laughs> yeah. I also like the, the casualness. Uh, and again, it's a performance thing that involves a lot of confidence. And in this, when they're just university students making this film, it's really hard to pull off. But when they are eating the human flesh, but being super casual about it, <laughs> just chomping away on it and having an, an, uh, an incidental conversation in spite of the context, it kind of trusts the audience to just sort of see the humor instead of you going, huh? Huh? Exactly. And uh, they had that confidence right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. um, there are things that work against the movie too, like I said, I mean, we're selling all the high points. I do think we do have to acknowledge that there are some valleys <laughs> to it. There are things, I think that the, the love interest, the female love interest, not the horse, horse was gold. Yes. Uh, that, that, that thread of the story didn't work as much. And I didn't, you know, I didn't invest beyond, because of the spectacular scale of the stupidity of the movie, I couldn't invest deeply enough to care in the fate of Mr. Packer, you know? Yeah. Um, and the music, like you said, was Cynthia, but I think that Cynthia doesn't even 100% say it. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's almost, it edges on annoying. It's almost it's, Casio quality, yeah. not there. But and it's yeah. not just in the songs, it scores the whole film, it's done throughout it. Mm -hmm. And it sort of advertises the like handmade quality of it, and I'm sure it just was a reflection of the budget, but it does hurt the enjoyment. <laughs> I would love to see what could have been done if this musical was given Phantom of the Opera's budget, or even just a quarter of that budget. <laughs> It, and actually, from what I understand, there were stage productions of this. And there continue a, to be. It had its uh, UK debut on stage in 2004, I believe. But uh, a lot of independent theater productions have been put up of this. I mean, in its own way, it has its cult standing. And it is an interesting footnote to see where the brilliant creative team, Trey Matt Stone, or Trace. Uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I keep saying it wrong, where they sort of started from. It's it's worth checking out for all of those reasons, but I don't want to oversell it. It is definitely a micro-budget movie, and it looks like it, and it sounds like it. So. You can see the genius there. The genius is hampered by its budget, but it's not repressed. Yeah. It's still there for everyone to see.
years ago, something happened out there. Something not very nice. May the Lord have mercy on yourself. character Sweeney Todd actually predates the story about this guy who cuts throats in a barber shop and um, I think this is sort of one of the original inc uh, incarnations of characters like um, Mr. Ripley from the talented Mr. Ripley series or uh, Kaiser Sose uh, figure crime figure from Usual Suspect in that uh, he's a very smart malevolent uh, villain character who tends to get away with it and we kind of through the, the story, almost come to side with him, just because even though what he's doing is despicable, he gets away with it, and he's really clever, and the way he manipulates people is impressive. Um, well, at some point, he was sort of transformed, this character, and he had a bunch of sort of penny dreadful stories uh, told about the Sweeney Todd-like character, but it sort of crystallized into the this barber of Fleet Street and which, at some point, instead of him just killing people and selling them as meat and getting away with it and becoming a cunning businessman, he became sort of a an anti-hero or, or a vengeful, tragic figure. And uh, that's the direction it eventually took with the Sondheim musical and uh, most of the more modern takes on, on Sweeney Todd. Um, this is, of course, a huge budget production from Tim Burton, uh, yet again reuniting with Johnny Depp, and again, we have an actor who's never sang before, who just, Tim Burton wanted me to be in his movie, and uh, I am Tim Burton's slave. I don't know what kind of pictures Tim Burton has of Johnny Depp locked away in some safe somewhere. <laughs> but uh, uh, here they go again to bring us Sweeney Todd. Um, some people work well together, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And for, like, I, I'm not, I don't think that their relationship's necessarily toxic, but I think that they've gone to the well a lot. And it seems to be they can sell any project. They can hang anything on Burton and Johnny Depp. If you got Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, they can make whatever movie they want. As long as those two are involved, money in the bank, right? Indeed. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you get Ed Wood... And then sometimes you get Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> uh, I don't think this hits either of those extremes, and I think it's uh, much more to the positive and to the negative. Uh, I will say that story-wise, this is very much in Tim Burton's wheelhouse. I don't think visually he needed to stretch himself at all <laughs> uh, to sort of present us with this oily, dirty, filthy, uh, gothic-again take on, on London and tell this very bloody story of revenge. Well, as you know, Larry... This is probably one of my favorite periods in history. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we played a role-playing game together back in the 90s. In Guilty. Which this was set. Yep. And, uh, yeah, Dickensian London. Mm -hmm. Know lots about it. I even wrote a screenplay set there. Yeah. So, I've got a soft spot for it right off the bat. 
the story is basically a transported barber comes back to London to get revenge on Judge Turpin, the man who ruined his life. Stole his wife. Stole his wife and his daughter. And is unsuccessful at that at first and starts murdering people where his accomplice, Mrs. Lovett, starts stuffing them into meat pies. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Anthony, a young sailor, falls in love with his daughter, who is the ward of Judge Turpin. What will happen? I'm pretty sure it's all going to turn out perfectly happily in the end. A <laughs> um, couple things I'm going to say right off the bat that surprised me. Um, I'm not anti Helena Bonham Carter. Like I, I, I like her as a rule, but I've never been particularly bowled over by Helena Bonham Carter either. I'm sort of like, she's another actress, I guess. I feel the same way, and whenever people praise her like that, I'm always like, what the hell are you guys talking about? But continue. Go I ahead. love her in this movie. Uh, maybe it's her character. Uh, she's she is a goblin practically. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about your goblin role playing game, but she, you know, she's totally willing to be duplicitous and do terrible things but she's got this sort of rough charm about her in a way i think she's kind of the heart of the movie (laughs) 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 and there's other love stories going on and uh, tragic case of revenge um she could be the redemption for sweeney todd even though she's encouraging him to murder people and stuff them in meat pies well and as bad as murdering people and turning them into meat pies it's still better than the meat pies she was selling before (laughs) she had that great sort of introductory number about her selling the worst pies in London London. yeah Yeah. Uh, and so right away I was like charmed especially by her and uh, that gave me good access to it and again I found that the musical numbers did push story I didn't feel like the movie stopped and I had to wait through a musical number I was getting information and that is a big plus for me mm-hmm. because like I say this is not my, my preferred genre um, so that was a really good hook for me in too uh, I also greatly enjoyed the supporting role from Sasha Baron Cohen mm-hmm. uh, and again he's playing outside of his, his sort of comfort zone and, and doing quite well at it um, Alan Rickman and Johnny Depp were the two most notable non-singers in the cast everyone else had had at least some experience Helena Bonham Carter said she had some experience singing but that particular role was infamously a very difficult one to sing, just even for a professional. Uh, everybody kind of, I, I thought, did well. Uh, there was something a little bit awkward about uh, Alan Rickman, but I think it worked with his character too. There was like, he almost felt uncomfortable in his own skin. I don't know if that was him being uncomfortable singing or if that was just a uh, performance choice. But See, I thought that his performance as a singer was really great. Yeah? Um, undeniably, Alan Rickman, of course. Of course. Like, I think if anyone heard him, a number from this, they would be able to instantly identify, oh, that's Alan Rickman. Right? <laughs> yes. Right? So... Uh, but yeah, the looking uncomfortable all the time, you could see that in his character, particularly when he basically challenges Anthony to just kill me now, here I stand. Yeah. Just this self-loathing that I do bad things, but I don't know any other way to operate. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I mean, other than the singing, really, it's not uh, anything much of a stretch for Rickman. I mean, he's played... <laughs> Damaged, duplicitous, bad, evil characters before. Let's be mm-hmm. let's be honest. Yes. But I did very much enjoy him here. Uh, yeah, and like you say, Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, who knew he could sing? He yeah. can sing. Yeah. And just the characterization in general of this uh, the snake oil salesman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Again, and, he's a despicable character, but you kind of, kind of like you're sort of charmed by him. <laughs> yep. James Campbell Bower plays the sailor Anthony. He's also got a very clarion voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, the music itself, I have to say, more than any of the other movies that is in this pile here, is superior, in right. my opinion. It's got a darkness to it and an inventiveness. Every number is different. And the other thing about it, too, is that there are some actually very, very beautiful songs to be heard in this uh, movie. And you can't really say that about the other ones. There's a, a deepness and richness to all of the orchestration that just blew me away. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, loved it. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I guess I wasn't as blown away by the songs on, on First Pass. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times music kind of catches you the second or third time, too. You kind of, the first time you're just so busy experiencing it that it, you got to you know, <laughs> get into it. Um, um, yeah, I didn't where where I didn't a hundred percent connect with the songs on the first pass. What they had for me, uh, over and above like the charming characterizations and the actors, if I couldn't connect with the music, was the over the top level of the gore and the violence in the movie. Because we were doing musical horror, uh, we've definitely been hitting those notes of the music for sure, but not all of them have been hitting the notes of the horror to it. And it would be something that you you probably could sneak around, but. This is Tim Burton, and he doesn't believe in sneaking around. Famously, when they did the uh, Sleepy Hollow uh, rendition with Johnny Depp again, it was almost like a running game on set to see how many takes they could get blood spray in Johnny Depp's face. Yes. <laughs> uh, people get their throat slashed repeatedly and graphically, and it is shockingly violent, especially when you first see it. It's just like, holy shit. Because, the, you know, so much about the, the, mu the musical is lush and beautiful, particularly <laughs> the music, and then all of a sudden we're seeing throats getting slit, and then dumped headfirst down a shaft onto their head on a rock slab two stories and down. nothing spared, like mm -hmm. right down to the final crunch. Uh, they're not they're not going to sugarcoat what these guys are doing and they are fairly indiscriminate in who they're killing it's not like uh, this is all some elaborate revenge you know Alan Rickman is the evil that needs to be punished but most of these people that end up in the meat pies just went to the wrong place to get a haircut yep and in fact there's the the scene where he uh, the song where he first first starts killing people we see him murdering various people and then we see him looking kind of irritated and disappointed at he, as he's shaving a guy yeah. while his wife and daughter are sitting playing in the background. Exactly. You wonder how he manages to stay in business. <laughs> uh, and of course this is all serving the plot too. This isn't just for the sake of bloodletting. I think that he does develop a crazed bloodlust and of course uh, ends up costing him dearly. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Um, very tragic ending. We don't really necessarily need to go into much detail about it, no. but there is a, a significant plot thread left hanging mm -hmm. uh, that is in the musical resolved. Um, basically, he leaves his daughter waiting upstairs, and then that's the last we see, see of her. her. That's right. But in the musical, she actually does come downstairs to see the carnage along with Anthony and and the Peelers. Right, they just spared her that in the movie. And then all the ghosts get up and sing a number after that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm almost surprised Britain didn't go there. <laughs> Again, this was my first presentation of the story. I mean, I was vaguely aware of the the tale of the the barber that would had the trap door under his 
chair and was feeding the restaurant across the street. I knew that as a concept, but it was all very hazy. Yes. This is sort of my first presentation of it. And uh, I got to say, there was a time where I just, I thought Tim Burton was amazing. And then he went out of his way to disprove me. And it's, it's really nice to see a Tim Burton movie and walk away satisfied, especially when I wasn't expecting it. I was like, oh, musical, and it's Johnny Depp again, and it doesn't look that different aesthetically than everything he's done. And uh, to my surprise, I can heartily endorse Sweeney Todd, and uh, I, you know, I didn't anticipate it when I heard it coming out. So. I'll, I'll one up you on that. I mean, um, before this, Ed Wood was easily my favorite Tim Burton movie, yeah, and I just sort of viewed him as a flawed filmmaker otherwise. Yeah. But I think this has eclipsed Ed Wood for me. I think this is my officially favorite Tim Burton movie ever. Wow. Oh, see, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I definitely say, uh, especially of his recent output, this is definitely a higher watermark. So, um, and of this list of movies, I think you will find it ranks high. I love the performances, love the plot, and love the music especially. Yeah. Uh, but also, it has a charm about it that it's a horror musical that is not winking at you and saying hey look we're making a horror musical aren't we crazy yeah absolutely <laughs> and no it, it, and it works way more than you, i would have expected it to um and like i say I, I have to really hit that point about the the violence in it uh not for the kids <laughs> this movie at all <laughs> <laughs> you've seen all kinds of movies but you've never seen anything like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They're probably foreigners with ways different than our own. I'm just a sweet transvestite. See the Rocky Horror Picture Show. A different set of Jaws. Rated R. Um, so, growing up with a love of theater as I did, uh, and in the Edmonton, Alberta area, I would visit the Fringe there quite often. And it's actually surprisingly one of the biggest fringes in uh, Canada. You get great turnout there, and really good, good level of shows. Unlike other ones. Unlike other fringes that shall remain nameless. Anyway, uh, before I burn any further bridges, um, in... <laughs> I remember being a kid and, and going to see great shows at the Fringe and sort of developing an early passion for theater. And my mother and her dear friend Carol were going to go see a midnight showing of this Fringe play. And uh, the benefit of it was that me and my friend Scott and Karen got to sort of hang out by ourselves and party and have fun and have the house to ourselves, <laughs> which was exciting. But we were being left out of going to see this play at midnight. And the play had this title that was really sexy. <laughs> It was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I'd seen adult-oriented plays many times before, and I just couldn't understand why we weren't invited to come along, and I was really kind of pissed about it. <laughs> um, but it turns out it was an adult. There was a, an adult-only showing of it. They weren't allowed to bring the kids. They were sp strictly forbid it. And because we didn't know how to participate in all of the uh, crowd participation stuff, it would have been wasted on us. I don't know what young Larry would have possibly made of this production. I uh, don't know what to make of it. <laughs> uh, it is bizarre, but it is a genuine cultural artifact. It is like a huge cult phenomenon. And uh, it, uh, this is arguably a quote-unquote classic film. And like a lot of classic films, like Wizard of Oz or, or uh, the uh, what's the Jimmy Stewart Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Miracle on... Something or it's, no, it's a, it's a Wonderful Life. Both the Wizard of Oz and It's a Wonderful Life tanked 
when they first came out. And, and this movie, nobody went to see in the theaters. But somehow, even before the home video market was a, a, a big thing, a, a cult audience rumbled around this movie, and particularly around the central performance Tim Curry gives in it, that to this day, almost any Halloween in almost any city, somewhere there's going to be a screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And some theater owner is going to be paranoid that all the people flicking bits are going to start a fire. Or they're going to be squirting water guns and making the screen wires. Or that people will complain because everyone's calling uh, the Susan Sarandon character a bitch all the time. That no one's actually going to be able to hear the film. <laughs> uh, this movie has a life outside and beyond itself that not only do not understand, I don't think is something that could be understood. <laughs> So it's weird to just sit down in a, in a room by myself and watch this movie because it seems like that's not how the movie was meant to be consumed. Uh, but <laughs> here I am sitting down to watch, critically uh, take a look at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think maybe it's for the best that we didn't <laughs> sit and watch this for the first time in the chaos of the theater. Or at least I didn't. Yeah. This was my first viewing of it, actually. So I, I will defend right off the bat a lot of the music in this movie. I think that this does have some really catchy good songs in it. Um, at, as far as a story, um, it's a very vague <laughs> story. It's more of a series of events <laughs> that happen than a real full arc. A uh, newlywed couple get sidestruck by a storm and end up in a crazy mansion full of weirdos and uh, that are led by uh, a, a freaky transvestite. <laughs> the setup, of course, is very familiar to the old uh, midnight horror movie picture shows. Mm -hmm. um, and Deliberately so, I'm exactly. sure. So, yes, and so they meet Tim Curry, who's a transvestite, and he basically just does things to them for the duration of the picture. And, uh <laughs> Seduces, seduces both of them. them and humiliates them and then he dies and that's the end yeah it is a series of bizarre and confounding events uh memorably so you, know, you get a a big number from a, a young and stills bry meatloaf um which was the best part of the movie as far as i'm concerned <laughs> i actually thought he did a good performance i gotta say this is like this uh little tubby greaser bully dude <laughs> Um, and it's charming to see Susan Sarandon so young and, uh, you know, at, at that stage in her career, probably thrilled to just be in a movie, let alone in such a big role. And well, it was very thoughtful of the creators to have her walking around in a brassiere for most of the movie. Yeah, that had crossed my mind as well. Indeed. <laughs> mm, anyway. Um... But again, the movie is bigger than, than, than the movie, right? It's become this big sort of I guess you could argue it was one of the first thing that quote unquote mainstreamed uh, like gay and lesbian stuff and made them cool and okay to watch and enjoy and not just a, a, the subject of ridicule it doesn't have the most happy ending I guess for, for the transvestite character and he is something of a villain but uh, there was a freeness to the sexuality and an openness in its portrayal that was you know I think unusual at least in that it had found such popularity this is clearly a movie with an agenda of some sort and as far as I can tell it seems to just be engage your sensuality sexuality and damn the consequences but <laughs> I can't tell like it seems like is that the only agenda here, or did I miss something? Uh, that might even just be it. It could be as simple as that. And we also, again, have to consider where this has come from. I mean, the movie came out in the late 70s, so the play probably developed in the late 60s, early 70s. I don't have any of this information in front of me. 73 so. is when it first came out. <coughs> Thank stage. you. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I can see residual sixties positive energy, man. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, sort of giving voice to you know, yeah, we're letting go of some of the sixties values, but maybe we shouldn't be so judgmental about sexuality, and maybe um, denying ourselves our, our our urges that we think of as base is something that needs to be rethought. Of course, this is nothing that's dealt with directly in the in, in the story at all, but subsequent to it it's not the movie i keep saying this it's not the movie it's the world that this movie somehow created it's an anomaly <laughs> what strikes me as weird about this movie is it, it in so many things about it you know the transvestitism the bad dubbing <laughs> the bad acting the bad blank just fill in the blank there yeah it seems in so many ways to be testing the patience of the viewer <laughs> Or at least their comfort level, uh, and I that I had problems with that. I admit it. <laughs> I <laughs> seeing Tim Curry made me a little bit uncomfortable. It ashamed me to say that. Oh, yeah. Um, but also all those other aspects of it seemed to be challenging me, <laughs> and I don't know if that was the intent of the movie, but it certainly worked if it was. Um. Again, there was something about the confidence about that performance, and he's sort of like uh, an appealing villain, sort of like we've been talking about in some of the other movies. He, he does a lot of really terrible things. He's the villain of the piece, clearly. Yes. And the fact that he dies is maybe not such a bad thing. You know, maybe the world hasn't lost something. It's definitely lost in original, but, uh, you know, uh, just because you want to do it doesn't necessarily mean you always should, you know? <laughs> Yeah, actions <laughs> actions do have consequences, uh, but I don't I don't think the movie is moralizing. I think that the, the the play just is about having fun. I think that the problem approaching the movie is is the way that we would consume it now. In that I sat in in this room and watched it on that TV there by myself, and I don't think that's how it's meant to be experienced. I mean, if you want to sit down and watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show and enjoy it as a cultural artifact, you can. And I think that, you, you know, you won't be wasting your time to watch it. But I think the way to watch it would either to be going to see a live production of it or go see a screening with all the fans coming out in costume and screaming, damn it, Janet, every time Janet's name is spoken and, and flicking a bick when the right cue comes up. Uh, sort of participating in the culture, sort of celebrating the strangeness and individuality and craziness of this movie. Yeah, and I think it's... if you see it that way, it's a 10-star movie. But I think <laughs> if you watch it by yourself in a room, staring at a TV, looking to sort of critically try and break it down... It, it almost def it's almost critic proof it almost defies it defies that because i can say that there are things about it that are clumsy and goofy and uh it's true you know i can say some of the performances so yeah right i have to assume so um and i can say that there is no real through story line story to hold on to or characters that i get to know well enough that i care whether they live or die mm -hmm. But, you know, science fiction double feature is a great song, and, and Let's Do the Time Warp again is a really catchy song. <laughs> and uh, I think in the end, all this movie wants is to put a smile on your face and have fun. So it's kind of hard to hate it for that. And if in the packaging people sort of see it as a, an anthem for gay pride, great. Uh, I mean, I think that's problematic in that, like you say, the character is kind of negative and it sort of feeds into that, well, if we want to make a movie that sort of portrays uh, a drag queen in a positive light, 
how about we hire an actual drag queen just for shits and giggles <laughs> just for maybe authenticity i don't know uh but again in the 1970s the world wasn't ready you know <laughs> the movie is so much more about gayness and transvestitism though it's, yeah it's about getting over your inhibitions and doing what you actually want to do and in a celebration of it and in being so open about it again especially at the time it was also asking other people to be okay with it too in a way not in an overt preachy philadelphia way by the way you know it's like in a in a fun theatrical experience way and i understand its significance for that regard as a movie is it amazing no but uh i like it <laughs> All right, that's six musical horror movies reviewed. Woo! How Woo! do you feel? How do you feel? Well, I'm generally sedate about most things, but as you can tell, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, you could practically have to tie you to your chair. Um, so you're going to have to go first. For a while there, I was thinking that this might be the episode where we go six for six, but as we talked about the movies, now I'm more doubtful. But uh, I, I don't comes. think I've got it. Here it comes. Well, obviously, I think we know what uh, what number six is. You know? dum, the dum, Phantom dum, 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 of dum. the Opera is there <laughs> at number six for being a clunky borathon. Number five, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um just mainly for being intentionally irritating and not making very much sense. Wow, that low. However, I will say that it's miles ahead of Phantom of the Opera in terms okay. of how much I enjoyed it. So from here on, uh, you can at least expect a, uh, a tentative thumbs up for me. Number four is Cannibal the Musical for being the little horror musical that could. Right. Three is Repo the Genetic Opera for being stylish goth opera that works on many levels. Two is Little Shop of Horrors for being clever, funny, and having a no-holds-barred sad ending. <laughs> and one is Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, for being musically superior and pretty much almost perfect. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> we have we have remarkably different lists, Jeremy. I gotta say, <laughs> fuck you to Phantom of the Opera for a couple reasons here. I've recently amended the rules to rank and review, in which there are now two ways in which one can get a prize. Okay, let's hear it. If you match me six for six, you get a prize. If you match me zero for six, you get a prize. And I'm pretty sure if we hadn't both hated Phantom of the Opera that much, you would have gotten a prize. Because I think we're different on almost every other step here. But correct me where I'm wrong. Let's hear it. But surprise, surprise, at number six is Phantom of the Opera. And all I'm going to say here is that I tried. I legitimately, like, I, I gave this movie a fair shake. I had apprehension going in. I think the production values of the movie are strong, but it's just not for me. And at over two hours, it's punishing. Um, at number five, here comes round one of the fight, Cannibal the Musical. Uh, I do think that it has really great moments of hilarious, uh, uh, great bits. And, and Jeremy and I talked about a lot of the highlight reel of the movie. The thing is, is that in that 10 minute review, we probably covered the highlight reel. The movie's 90 minutes long, and there is large gaps in between 
And I did find, you talked about the ir- general irritation that you felt watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That synth score in Cannibal, the musical, made me want to stop the movie for popcorn a few times just to give myself a little <laughs> break. So I, I admire this movie, but I can't deny that it's got flaws. In fourth place is where I put Repo the Genetic Opera. Um, and I think it's interesting, but I sort of stand by after I'd seen the first half an hour, I felt like I'd seen the whole movie. It never really topped itself. It sort of had it, it had a sameness to it, and it sort of made it not as memorable, I guess, to me. At least on first pass. Um, at third position, I put the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, and again, I would encourage you to see this as it was meant to be seen, with a crowd of people who know and love the film. And I do think that, that you'll probably at least get the fun of the experience. Next uh, time. Next, next time. time. Next time. Um, but that's where it ended up for me. In second place, we need Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which I have a lot of positive things to say about, which I haven't had a lot of positive things to say about Tim Burton in a while. And I think this might have more to do with Sondheim than it does to Tim Burton in some respects. But it was in his wheelhouse, and it is undeniably brilliantly executed, and something out of this list that I can wholeheartedly endorse. Maybe I have a personal childhood bias to Little Shop of Horrors, and like I said, I like the comical musicals. I think that I, I find the more accessible, personally. But I just thought the Little Shop of Horrors is sort of distilled joy into one little movie in a lot of ways. And uh, I do think that the, the 60s vibe is pretty catchy and that, that Audrey 2 plant is still amazing today. I, I, I don't think it could be done as well or better if they tried to remake it. I don't think it could be in any way improved upon, except maybe downplay the synth just slightly. <laughs> yes. Well, you, you, it's a fairly good list you have. You, you're only slightly wrong on, on some counts. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose if there was some kind of an alternate universe, Jeremy, I could come up with those choices, and, and I wouldn't be wrong in that universe. But I'm sorry, yeah. brother. Uh, but I do appreciate that you're doing the musical horrors with me, and I hope you decide to come back. I know somebody's going to get a fucking prize one of these days. I can't believe we're like 27 episodes in, and we've only had one winner. I, I feel like this is rigged. This whole thing is a fucking sham. But uh, it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, if it can't happen with you or Beckman, I mean, it's just not going to. <laughs> Matt's coming up. Matt's coming up soon. Matt yeah, will so. probably have the, the right idea. He was very close with his last one, wasn't he? Anyway, let's do some Jerry's. Let's do it. We're gonna do musical juries, so that means we sing these. No, uh, <laughs> uh, instead of doing the typical list things, Jeremy has come up with uh, the Jerry Award winners. So what I have is the categories. So what we're gonna try is I'm gonna guess who he chose, and we'll find out whether uh, I was right or wrong. And if you get them all, you will get a prize. All right. Yep. So here, uh, you just give them to me in any order you want. Uh, uh, okay, we'll go with best performance. Best performance. Um, okay. Well, see, the popular vote would probably say Tim Curry, but I know you hated that movie. We both had a big... I sh- did not hate that movie. Well, you hate's a strong word. I apologize. <laughs> we both liked Helen of Autumn Carter. Uh, 
I'm going to give it to Ellen Green, but I don't know if you'll agree or not. I'm going to give it to Ellen Green for Little Shop of Horrors. A worthy choice, but wrong. I'm giving it to Trey Parker for doing everything. Oh, okay. Yep. Next, uh, worst performance and... Ooh. Worst performance. And biggest unintentional laugh. A double feature to one person. Oh. And biggest unintentional laugh. Um... Emily Rossum, Dungeon of the Opera. Yes, yes. That poor girl. <laughs> to be fair, she was 16 years old, so let's let's just put that out there. Um, I actually, upon when I was watching it, I was a little bit more bothered by uh, Gerard Butler for some reason. I think his character is really irritating too. Oh, he pissed me off, but Emily Rossum more yeah. so. Okay. All right. Best kill. Oh, there's so many in Sweeney Todd. <laughs> um, Getting warmer. <laughs> I'll say Sasha Baron Cohen and Sweeney Todd, but there's a lot of good ones too. A special mention to Steve Martin in uh, in Rocky or in uh, Little Shop of Horrors, but yeah, the, probably the Sasha Baron Cohen character because it's the first time that, that we really get some full spurt on in that movie. Well, that is pretty shocking, but I don't think it tops Beetle Bamford uh, falling down the chute after his uh, throat is cut. And then his head splitting open. Slashing onto the concrete. (laughs) (laughs) Again, they spare us nothing, and we kind of thank them for it. (laughs) All right, and I know you're not going to get this one, but this is a best song, and it also wins the award for best creepout. Best song and best creepout. I'm guessing you're going to go Sweeney Todd again. I don't know the names of the songs there, too. Oh, uh, you're right. I'm not going to get this one. So I'm going to say Mean Green Mother from <laughs> Little Shop Awards. Because she's a mean green mother from outer space, and she's mad. It's a good show, a good, good song. But it, in fact, was from Sweeney Todd. And it's Pretty Women, Pretty Women. This oh, yes. wonderful scene where... The viewer is treated to watching Sweeney Todd with his unaware nemesis sitting in the chair in front of him, giving him a shave as he slowly savors his coming victory, singing this beautiful song about how a pretty woman can make your life better, and you want him to cut the throat so bad, but you also don't want him to, because you know it's going to be awful. (laughs) So it's a a great moment from that. Um, Best scare, no best scare award. No that, best scare? No. Okay. Nothing really jumped out at us, did okay. it? Unless you can think of something. Uh, nothing made me jolt in the, sh- in the seat. Uh, and, and it was an anticlimax in that it didn't have as much weight in the story as it could, but it was a very elaborate and ugly death that Blind Mag suffered in, uh, in Repo. Yeah, that, that could be argued for best kill. I suppose, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, and fa- finally, biggest what-the-fuck moment. Biggest what-the-fuck moment. Um, towards the end of Cannibal the Musical, when the unkillable killer pops up just one more time before the credits. Perfect in its own way. And actually, I'm going to change my answer to that. Uh, 
my original answer was the slow death of Rick Moranis oh. as he's being drawn towards Audrey too. Right. And, the, you know, there's this moment. They really moment. make you savor it, don't they? Yeah, there's this moment where it's like, okay, he's coming towards the mouth. In another movie, this is where he'd pull the ace out of his sleeve yeah. that would destroy Audrey too. And there he's getting closer. And the, nope. <laughs> Out go the glasses. But no, no. The uh, the final pop up of final I can't remember pop. that character's name. Bell. Bell. Okay. I actually <laughs> almost need to watch it again and go past the end credits because if I was uh, Trey Parker, I would have put one more post credits too, just for shits and giggles. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did watch past the credits and there's nothing. So. Well, thank you so much for doing another episode of Rank and Review with me, um, and I just want to put this out there for the listeners, too. I know I ranked Cannibal at number five. I do think it's it's worth watching Cannibal the Musical. Uh, I just... you got to make these lists something. There's something arbitrary about being forced to rank them one to six. It's a good movie. It just is what it is. And if you go in knowing what you're getting into, you can have a good time with that movie. Well, it's the same thing with me, too. With my list, basically from five up, I would say it's worth a watch. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, can Have we said everything bad about Phantom that could possibly be said? <laughs> no, I'm point? sure we could go on and on. Okay. <laughs> Somewhere, somebody is ruminating about the badness of that movie. Um, but is it is it Batman and Robin bad? <laughs> Is it like one of the low points? Is it one of the things that's evidence to the not worthiness of Schumacher? Because I think Schumacher was trying like hell to make it watchable. <laughs> like he was, he wasn't sitting there flicking a cigarette saying whatever. I think he was trying. It just wasn't working for me. I think it's more a testament to the injustness of the world because if you <laughs> if you look at imdb.com, this movie has a seven point one rating somehow, and you think to yourself. I don't want to live in a world like I that. I think people where... rate the movie on their memory of the play. I know I'm a theater snob, but I think there's some truth to that. <laughs> I think people love seeing the play so much, and they can watch the movie and squint their eyes and pretend they're seeing the play. <laughs> <laughs> J. Adrian Cook is a local writer and musician. No, sorry. <laughs> That's my phone voice. Uh, would, would you like to uh, sell yourself to the people on the internet? Sure. Um, uh, as many of you know, I'm in a band called The Residuals, a Celtic folk band. Uh, we, a couple of years ago, we uh, uh, did a CD, and I'm happy to say as of today that it's actually fully paid off. Yay! So any money we make from it is actually going into our pockets instead of uh, the guilt zone. So if you want a copy, uh, write Rank and Review, and I will find a way to get you a copy. Yeah, good idea. Um, also, you can find one of my short stories in a zombie compilation called Black Chaos, Tales of the Zombie. Published author, punch that shit in. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. And you'll be able to see another one coming up in an anthology called Vampires Suck. <laughs> Alternate Hilarities, or something like that. Right on. Yeah. I'm excited about this. Um, and you will hear from your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, in two weeks, in which we discuss real-life horrors, which will make all of this seem so silly and arbitrary by comparison. <laughs> you know... <laughs> For any of the uh, viewers out there who can't see podcasts for some reason, we <laughs> yes. actually did a fist bump at one point. <laughs> That's <there>. true. <laughs> anyway. That's how cool we are. <laughs>
And thus concluded episode 27, Musical Horror. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to send your feedback, I would welcome it. You can send emails to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. This is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, saying thank you for listening.